If you have your Bibles, would you please open them to the book of Acts? Book of Acts. Let's open with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you that your word is truth. Thank you that your word is authoritative. Thank you your word is inspired. It's inerrant. It's infallible. That all scripture is God-breathed. And we thank you for your word. And Lord, I just pray that you'd help us, help it to become alive to us today. Your spirit would just teach us Oh, show us what we should do and live on honoring you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when I was younger, I, uh, I liked the game Trivial Pursuit. Um, it was just a lot of fun. And there were some questions that I, I decided to look up some of the cards and see what was written on that. It's been a while since I played it. But one was, uh, which president had a fox terrier pet named Big Ben and Sonny? That was Herbert Hoover. Or who invented the rocking chair? It has Benjamin Franklin. Uh, the average person does this about 13 times a day. Laugh. Uh, Pac-Man was called Paka in Japan. What does Paka mean? Eating. I thought, well, those are really interesting things. You know, and so, um, but the word trivial means uh, it's little worth, little substance, little significance something unimportant or insignificant. And I was just thinking as we were, as we were reading through um, Acts that it talked about um, the Athenians and what they did. And it says that all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. It made me think somewhat of what William Carey said. He said, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm f- afraid of succeeding in the things that don't matter. So I was wondering about this, this section right here and what actually to focus on. And I see that, you know, God was showing me that uh, Paul went into Athens and he saw a city full of idols. And it made me think this is my first main point, that when, when people would go to Athens, they might see, like, there's the Acropolis. And then the Acropolis literally means high city. And there you would see the Parthenon right there because the Greeks and the Romans did this. They would build like uh, a temple or something on the highest point. And so you would see the Parthenon there and in the Parthenon you would see the goddess Athena. That's where you get the name Athens. She was the, the goddess of wisdom and war. And then you might see just right down below that you would see the, um, the Areopagus. And uh, so what that means is it means uh, um, city of the, the hill of Ares or the hill of war. And, and uh, in Latin, it would be like Mars Hill. But there would be another beautiful temple there as well. And then you would see the Agora. That would be the marketplace. But all throughout Athens, you would see idols. In fact, they used to say that there were more idols that were in Athens than men. It said that you would see some 30,000 idols that would be um, all around the city and that you would, that doesn't count all the idols that people would have in their home as well. So here's Paul and Paul, it says that he had left Berea, remember, and that he was waiting in uh, Athens for Silas and Timothy. But as he was there, 
You know, I was just thinking as tourists, when they come to Athens, they might see all of these beautiful temples that are there, all of these, the, the, the architecture, the, the wisdom, the theater that was there, and uh, all the things that make Athens attractive, and they would just go, wow. They'd say, wow. Look at all that. It's just like, just wow. But Paul had a different mindset. Paul saw... Athens, as God saw Athens, full of idols. And he didn't go, wow. He went, whoa, whoa. Look at all of the idols that are all around. And it moved him. In fact, the way the word that it says that, it said that he was distressed. In some versions, it says that he was provoked. That um, just like it talks about in the Old Testament, how the idols have provoked God. It was, there was a, you know, a movement inside and it angered him. You know, so Paul wasn't going there and he was looking around like, wow, look at this, wow, look at that. It was like, whoa. I like the way that um, Warren Wearsby said it. He said, Paul arrived in the great city of Athens not as a sightseer, but as a soul winner. He didn't enter there as a sightseer, but a soul winner. The description right there where it says full of idols is actually one Greek word. And the word means thick with means luxuriant with. It means swamped with idols. The city was absolutely full of idols. It reminds me of the words in 1 John, the very last verse. And it just seemed strange to me at first why it was like that. But at the very last verse in 1 John, it says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. It reminds me as we go into this and dig a little deeper of what Martin Luther said. He said, anything that your heart clings to or confides in is your God. It doesn't have to be a figurine or something that you put on a shelf, a graven image of something. But anything that takes the place of God that you put in your heart, it can be an idol. Work can be an idol. You know, uh, anything could be an idol for that matter. Some people, could, they, wherever you put your, 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 like your treasures, your talents, your time, whether it's in... Let's say sports. Sports can be an idol. And I, I would say even at one part of my life, sports was an idol. Because if that's where I'm dedicating my time and that's displacing God, that's an idol. Paul would never pass up an opportunity to proclaim Jesus Christ. And he was going to take a stand for Jesus. But first, he would go to the synagogue and present Jesus to the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. The main point here that I wanted to make is in uh, this one verse is that he reasoned with the Jews. So he would reason with anybody. He'd, he'd reason with the Jews. Notice in verse 17 it says that after he went to the synagogue, it says as he went to the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there, anybody that would listen, he was willing to share Christ. Some make things happen. Some watch things happen, and some say, like, what happened? <laughs> Paul wasn't one of those to wait around for just Timothy and Silas and go sit down and take in Athens and go on a tour of Athens. He was going to engage people with the gospel by sharing it. First, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. It's important in evangelism to know your audience. And Paul knew that the Jews honored the scriptures, and he would reason with them using the scriptures. Notice when he reasoned with the Epicurean 
philosophers or the Stoic philosophers, he didn't pull out the Old Testament scriptures, but he did it in a different way. Jesus said to go first to the, to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And Paul's heart's desire was for the Jews, it says, to be saved in Romans 10.1. Luke doesn't spend much time talking about Paul in the synagogue, but you know if you were a God-fearing Jew that they would have been steadfast against all types of idolatry. They should be if they were honoring what the Old Testament said and even the Ten Commandments. It says, you have no other God before me, but the second one is thou shalt not have any graven images. The word synagogue means to assemble or bring together. And remember, the synagogues were originated during the Babylonian captivity when they didn't have the temples. And that was in 586 after the destruction of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar. And it served as a place of worship and for instruction. In the time of Jesus, there were synagogues in every town. And Paul had a message of hope. And he was willing to share it with anyone who would listen. God's message of salvation through Jesus Christ was for all. And there was a fire raging inside Paul. The Holy Spirit was fanning the flame. And after spending time in the synagogue, he went to the marketplace, it said. My third point is, it takes most of this chapter, was in verses 18 through 34. Paul's message of the gospel caught the attention of the philosophers in the marketplace. So he's in there, he's in the marketplace, he's in the Agora, and he's uh, talking about Jesus and the resurrection. And these Epicureans, they had sort of this type of philosophy. You just put it in a couple words, they enjoy life. And we'll talk a little bit more about the Epicureans, but that's where their philosophy was, enjoy life. The Stoics, they would endure life, that was their motto. The Epicureans were atheists. They denied God's existence. They denied life after death. They were materialists, and they felt that this life was the only thing that existed, and men should make the most of it. The Stoics, we've heard that word before in English, was somebody who was Stoic. They wouldn't show emotion. In fact, the Stoics, one of the greatest types of virtues for them was apathy, you know, not showing emotion one way or the other. They, follow, they were followers of Zeno, who, was, who were pantheists. They believed everything is God. He is not one in a separate, a separate entity, but he's in the rocks, he's in the trees, he's in material things. Their motto in today's language would be grin and bear it. They insisted on moderation. Don't get too emotional, that's what the Stoic would say, either about tragedy or happiness. But they call Paul a babbler. I thought that was a really interesting word, so I decided to look at that a little bit deeper. The Greek word actually means a seed picker. It's like a bird picking up a little seed of knowledge there and here. And it came figuratively to mean like a loafer in the marketplace that would pick up whatever scraps of learning here, little bit of learning there, and paraded it around without digesting it. The use of the word was not it wasn't a compliment towards Paul when they called him a babbler. So in verses 19 through 20, and they took Paul to the Areopagus, literally means Mars Hill. So Ares would be the goddess, the god of war, and P-A-G-U-S would be the hill. Ares was the god of war, and Latin was Mars Hill. It was a place of the council of the Areopagus, a supreme body of judicial and legislative matters were discussed. In Paul's time, its power had been reduced a little bit to just oversight of religion and education and so on. But 
Paul was dealing with some high-powered thinkers. Paul wasn't afraid. I mean, he'd been trained under Gamaliel. I mean, he was well-studied, but he had the power of the Holy Spirit. That's one thing to remember all the way throughout Acts, is that Jesus Christ, this is for me, every time I'm preaching a sermon or I look through this and I think about Acts, Jesus says, I will build my church. And he says in Acts 1.8, he says, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll receive power to be my witnesses. And so what do I see? I see in the book of Acts, Jesus Christ is building his church, and the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Spirit, is in people, whether it's Peter or Paul or others. They're proclaiming the message in the power of the Holy Spirit, and they are not afraid. That's why Paul could say in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He's not ashamed because he's a witness for Christ. So they asked this question. I think it's a really important question. They said, may we know what this teaching is that you are presenting. The word to know means to know by experience. This is a, the very word that Jesus used in John 17.3 when he said, this is life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom they sent. This is important to remember because we have a God that takes a personal interest in us. He wants to have a, a relationship with us that we might know him. And that's the things that I want to I do within my own life. Even what Paul says in Philippians 3, 10 and 11, it says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his, in his suffering. That should be one of our main goals as a believer in Jesus Christ is to know God and to make him known in the world. And that's that word here. May we know the teaching that you are presenting. And Paul says, I'm going to share them with you. I'm going to share them with you. The Athenians called the gospel message strange ideas. To the natural man, these ideas seem different, surprising and causing wonder. But their openness allowed Paul the opportunity to preach the gospel. In fact, it was uh, Demosthenes who rebuked the Athenians for running around and asking the question, what news, what news, you know. They're always interested in like new thinking or new whatever. How many people today in wealthy America are wasting their time in trivial pursuits and will vanish into nothingness in eternity because they want to know what's news, what's news? I can tell you the news. The good news is Jesus Christ. And that's where you should put, put your time and your energy. You know, I have lots of books on my shelves. I have lots of books. And I like reading books. But there's one book that I read every day. And I study every day. And I pray through every day. And that's the Bible. That's the book. That's the good news. And that's where we should focus our time and our energy in a particular book. And this description <clears throat> sadly fits many in America today who are spending their time doing nothing other than focusing on things that are seen and ignoring the things that are unseen. It says in 2 Corinthians 4.18, while we look at the things that are seen but at the things that are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, and the things that are unseen are eternal. Do we focus on things that last, that are for eternity? Verses 22 and 23. I was thinking about this. I like the way that Paul begins his address. He's courteous. He's polite. He doesn't denounce or attack or criticize them. They, it looked like they honestly were interested. They wanted to know more about these things. The first things that come out of uh, our mouths 
can lose an audience, in, depending on how we address them. Uh, if you bore them or insult them, you'll never get them back. Can you imagine how the message would have gone if Paul would have started out this way? I've come here today to expose your wretched and abominable sins. You're a bunch of hell-bound, idol-worshipping, heathen pagans who are on the fast track to the eternal flames of hell. I think they would have just turned him off. Are we kind or abrasive when we share our faith? I think Paul was pretty polite when he started out. He was face-to-face with giant heavyweights in education, according to the people of Athens, right? Very religious. They were religious. They had idols all around. They were religious. But they were totally ignorant about the true God. And here's what Paul is communicating to these intellectual scholars. You are very religious. I can see that. But... I'm going to tell you about the true God because you don't, you don't know him. I'm going to tell you about this unknown God. The second thing is that let me tell you who this God really is. You see that in verses 24 and 25. And in verses 26 through 28, he's saying, God is closer to you than you think. So Paul begins with a very creative hook. We talk about this in education. Sometimes when, like when I was in school, we called it the anticipatory set. You know, in education, now they call it a hook, but it's a way to grab your audience. The Greeks were fearful of offending any god, so they felt that they could cover their omissions by labeling an altar to the unknown god. The altar to the unknown god dated back actually some six centuries before Christ when a plague struck Athens, and the people were fearful that some god was offended, so people constructed altars and there was one that was to the unknown God. And Paul used some common ground with the audience for his sermon. Did not start out quoting, you know, scripture to the Athenians. Paul was kind in his approach. He tried to break down barriers and build bridges to the heart of his audience. I think that's important. He tried to break down barriers and tried to build bridges. He's quoting their own prophets. He's not quoting Zechariah. He's quoting their own prophets. I think that's something for us to remember when we talk about evangelism. He tried to break down barriers and build bridges to the heart of his audience. Paul said that he was walking around and he was carefully looking at the objects of worship. Why was this so important? He was taking time to know his audience and the city in which they lived. He was looking for some way to connect with them and to make a bridge between their world and the gospel. Paul doesn't begin his sermon by arguing from the viewpoint of religion or philosophy. He doesn't talk about some first principle to talk about in presuppositions. He begins with divine revelation. There is an intelligent design and there is a divine order. God is the creator of the cosmos. Notice that he starts out. Now this is important when I was looking at this. In verse 24, notice he starts out this way. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He didn't say a God. He said the God. The God. 
God transcends all creation. He's not bound by time or space. Therefore, nothing material can represent him. God is infinite, whereas the Greek gods were finite. The Epicureans believed that matter was eternal and therefore had no creator. And it contradicted, he contradicted the Stoics, who were pantheists and believed that God was part of everything. So they were somewhat intrigued when they listened to Paul. What was Paul saying when he said, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands? It just made me think as I was thinking about this. So here is the Oropagus right here. We have the Mars Hill. And then right beside it was the Acropolis. That's where the temple of Athena was, right? Okay, the Parthenon was right there. I could just see Paul just like pointing right up there. I mean, it was right there. He's saying that God's in charge. God is sovereign and complete control of the entire universe. He cannot be represented by idols and clearly declares that God does not live in temples made by hand, made by man that were scattered throughout all of Athens. All these idols were all over the place. God doesn't need a temple to dwell because he's everywhere. He's everywhere. I wonder if when Paul was talking that if he did point to the beautiful Parthenon that had housed the statue of Athena. God is the giver of all gifts. In fact, in James, he writes, every good thing is given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadows. Paul's point was clear. God doesn't really, he doesn't need us. He is self-sufficient and needs nothing that man can supply. It is God who gives us what we need, life and breath and all things. Pagan idolatry taught that men had to please the gods, bring gifts to the gods, make sacrifice to the gods, serve the gods. Truthfully, God is the giver of everything. It is man who desperately needs God. It is man who desperately needs God. We're going to have communion today. And I'll tell you, what the atonement is, is that there's reconciliation that's been made between a holy God and a sinful man. And who was the one that broke that, that, that shalom, the peace between God and man? It was man that broke it and walked away and chose to go his own way. And God, through Jesus Christ, who gave himself on, on the cross for us, makes a way for man to have a relationship to be reconciled to God. It's God doesn't need man. Man desperately needs God. God is the maker of every people and nation. You know, the Greeks, they had a lot of pride in themselves. I mean, there's more than just the Greek people. I mean, they thought a lot, pretty highly of themselves. God and Paul chose to confront their ethnic pride too. People were very proud to be Greek. They were proud of boasting that the Greeks were not immigrants from some other place or people group. God made all ethnic groups, Athenians and barbarians. They all came from Adam, and they all need a Savior. They all need Jesus Christ. We're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. There's no one is righteous, not even one. Greece is not the only nation on the earth, although they may have thought of that, but... He has planned the exact times when nations should emerge and decline. He also planned the specific area to be occupied. 
God is in absolute control. God is the sovereign one. Verse 27. I think this is important too. Is it says, God did not did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from each one of you. We need to seek God who's near. I like that where it says in James, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Because God is the creator, he's the ruler, he's the giver and sovereign. We should be moved to seek him. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me, it says. God has made man with eternity set in his heart. And man instinctively looks to fill that God-shaped vacuum. And sometimes they fill it with idols. And the only true place that should be on your heart is Jesus Christ. He should be on the throne of your heart. That's why of all the different quotes, the first quote that I, I always memorize and I say each morning is a David Brainerd quote, but the second one is a Spurgeon quote. Sin may enter the heart. It may, it's trying to enter your heart and fight for dominion in your soul. But it can never sit upon the throne. You have to say in your heart that you've reckoned yourself dead to sin and alive to God. That's Romans 6.11 right there. And what does it say in verse 12? And that Jesus Christ should reign in your heart. The only place that should be in your heart that sits, that deserves that right is Jesus. Not some idol. Verse 28, God is not hard to find. He's imminent. Imminence means that Jesus can return at any time. Imminent means that he is, there's, no, there's no place where God is not. He is sovereign. He, he's in control. He extends everywhere simultaneously. Our very life is held in his hands. We are totally dependent on God for our life that we possess. Even their own poets acknowledge the revelation of God in nature. Notice he, and notice how Paul does that. He knows his audience when he's presenting um, Jesus Christ to them. He, he's not bringing the Old Testament scriptures because they didn't have that background. But he's using his very own prophet, the poets. It says, we created God, even the Athenians. Paul is quoting the two Greek poets in verse 28. The Cretan poet Epimenides and the Sicilian poet um, Erastus. These quotes show the universal revelation of God as creator, ruler, and sustainer. Paul could have used the Old Testament to point out these truths, but he didn't. He used their own prophets. I've done that before, even when talking with you know, people that are Jehovah Witnesses. I mean, I don't use, I just use their Bible. So, because they, they think that some Bibles have errors in them, right? But there's, this, there's no errors. So I said, well, let's take a look at your Bible. And um, so I think that you need to know your audience as you're presenting um, the gospel to them. Verse 29, God created man. So God has to be more than just a, a mere man-made idol. Since humans have been created by God, the divine being, he cannot possibly be in the form of an idol, an image conceived and constructed by man. We should not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. I came across this quote from Jack Andrews and I liked it. No sculptor can craft him. No artist can draw him. No builder can reproduce him. No museum can unveil him. No mind can conceive him. No man has seen him. 
Verse 34, there's that word therefore that comes up a lot. And you ask that question, why is it there? It's a term of conclusion. What is the writer concluding? Can notice in 29, it said, therefore we are God's offspring. Paul appeals to his summary judgment here. Paul has shed light on this unknown God, this altar that they worshiped right here to the unknown God. Light requires a response and light was given. It demands an answer. God has been presented as the creator, sustainer, sovereign, and he is near. J. Vernon McGee says, Paul presented God as the creator of the past. He shows God as the redeemer in his present work. And he shows God as the judge in future work. There's a certainty of judgment. The proof of the judgment is the resurrection. Jesus rising from the dead. I like this. Jesus rising from the dead is the exclamation point of the believer's assurance of Jesus' victory over death. Think about this for a second. When Jesus was on the cross and he said to telestai, which means it is finished. It wasn't like I'm finished, but it is finished, right? How many people have been crucified before during Roman? There were thousands and thousands of people that were crucified. But how many have risen from the dead? One. Think about this. The resurrection of the dead was, G, was God's amen to the declaration of Jesus Christ. It is finished on the cross. Think about that. Jesus' victory is our victory because of the resurrection. I remember in one of the questions during my licensing interview, it says, how do we know that the Heavenly Father accepted Jesus' sacrifice for the penalty of sin on the cross. It was the resurrection. It was loud and clear. That was God's amen to Jesus' tetelestai. It is finished. Notice the three responses. Remember, it said the same sun that hardens the whack melts the clay, right? You can give the, the same sun, and to some person it might be different than the other. So what does it say? There were three responses that were given there in verses like 32 through 34. It says, when they heard this, the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. They rejected the message. Others said, we want to hear some more. And then some others, a few said, they became followers. They became followers. God calls us to be faithful in delivering the gospel message. It is God that gives the growth. We plant the seeds. I was thinking of, as I conclude this sermon, I was thinking of um, a hymn. It made me think about this idea of idols. It says, Lord Jesus, I long to be perfectly whole. I want thee forever to live in my soul. Break down every idol, cast out every foe. Now wash me and make me whiter than snow. That's my prayer for you, for me, for all of us. Break down every idol, cast out every foe. Now wash me and make me whiter than snow. There are two... um, applications I want to think about, for us to think about. One is this. 
Peter says, but in your hearts honor God, Christ Jesus as Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason that you hope that you have within you, but do it with gentleness and respect. I don't know. I'm thinking about Paul. I don't think like he had like, you know, an iPad there with all this information about Epimenides and about Erastus and everything else. He was prepared. And when he presented the gospel, it did it, like Peter said, with gentleness and respect. I thought that was important. I think that's important for us to think about as well. How do we present the gospel when we do that? Paul's a good example. The other is the different styles of different types of evangelism. Now, I understand sometimes in Acts 2, it was some t- confrontational. You know, like the one that you, you know, killed is Jesus Christ and so on. And repent and be baptized. Save yourselves from, the, from this corrupted uh, generation. And sometimes it's testimonial. I was thinking about the one where the blind man was uh, healed. And, uh, um, and the blind man says, one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see, Right? Sometimes it's relational. I was thinking about the gathering demoniac. Remember when Jesus, he wanted to go with Jesus. He said, no, go to your, your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. It was more a relational. Sometimes it's invitational where it says this, remember the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, she begged the people to come and to hear Jesus for themselves. Sometimes it was the evangelism was, was through serving him. It says Dorcas impacted the city by doing good deeds of kindness. And then there was Paul in Acts 17. He debated the philosophers up on Mars Hill. And he was kind and polite. He used their culture and context to communicate truth, the truth of the gospel. And it says some sneered, some wanted to hear more, and some became followers. And there's rejoicing in heaven because remember, over one person that comes to know Christ, what does it say? There's rejoicing in heaven. So the main thing I want you to remember today is this. It actually doesn't come from Acts, but it does talk about idols. But it's that 1 John 5.21 verse. The last thing that John said, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols because there's only one person that should be on the throne of your heart and it's not an idol. It's Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for loving us so much so that you sent your one and only son to earth to die for us, that we might be reconciled to you, that we might have a relationship with you that we might grow in knowledge and wisdom, to, to, that Jesus would become more real in our lives, that we would become more Christ-like in the way that we live. Lord, help us not to be ashamed. Paul wasn't afraid. Paul, was, Paul wasn't ashamed. And Lord, we're asked not to be ashamed either because you've given us the same spirit that you put in Paul, you put in us. The indwelling Holy Spirit has given us power to be able to be witnesses for you in this world. Lord, I pray that Many would come to know Christ through the testimony that you've, you've, you've given to us. Help us to live lives 
wholly consecrated to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.